Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. As I speak, it is Friday. But when you're listening to this, it could be Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. It's bonus time on the Ben Jarofsky Show. It could be the 4th of July. It could be the 4th of July. It could be any time because you're just a downloading, crazy kind of podcast and loving person. And my guest is a guest uh, I've known for quite a while. His name is Brandon Johnson. Yes, that Brandon Johnson, Cook County Commissioner, 1st District, also Deputy Political Director of the Chicago Teachers Union. Man knows quite a bit about Chicago politics, Cook County politics, national politics. We're going to talk about all that. Brandon, welcome to my new show. Hey, man, congratulations on your new show yet again. (laughs) And uh, thanks for having me. Yes, it's uh, my pleasure to have you here. Brandon was a frequent guest on my old show. In fact, I think he was my first live interview. Is that correct? Yeah, he was. If I could share a little story, he was the first guest where I go, okay, maybe Jarofsky uh, will be decent (laughs) at this. Brandon came in and immediately started trash talking me. He's not on his best behavior since he is a Cook County commissioner. But back in those days, uh, he came in and he said, man, you're the oldest rookie to get called up from uh, the AAA team. Remember that? I don't know if that was just that's probably more indicative of (laughs) the station you worked for that they had to go and grab. That's pretty bad, isn't it? That station I worked for. We will not mention the name of that station at all, Brandon Johnson. All right. Now, um, since we're trash talking, let's start off a little trash talking. Uh, Brandon is a uh, member of the Cook County Board of Commissioners, first district, as I said. Uh, And um, uh, Carlos Ramirez Rosa, who was on the show last week, the Ottoman of the 35th Ward, is the leader of sort of the Democratic Socialists. I don't know if he's the leader, but he's one of the the leading Democratic Socialists in the city council. talk more about that uh but you were saying that it's two to nothing yeah so you know in all due respect to the the growing left movement in chicago cook county and illinois but if we're keeping score (laughs) and i am cook county commissioners from the left progressive movement two (laughs) yeah city progressive members zero we've already passed on the county board of commissioners two very bold progressive ordinances and we we were sworn in just a couple of months ago and so you know i just want to just put out a challenge there to our you know progressive left brothers and sisters and city council they got some work to do (laughs) hear that carlos that's some trash talking there uh so talk a little bit about the two uh initiatives that you're proud of yeah and and again thanks Pam, and i do really appreciate the time and the work that you do and um you know the 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 growing progressive movement certainly um, is appreciative of just you know you pounding the pavement over the years. You know when many of us were in elementary school. <laughs> I knew that was coming. Uh, or in diapers. <laughs> that would be Carlos, right? Yeah. He's a pretty young guy. Yeah. Um, but one of the first things that we did yeah. with the leadership of Commissioner Alma Anaya, who is just a very dynamic uh, woman. She represents the seventh. Uh, county district, the southwest side of Chicago, uh, we moved immediately uh, to eradicate and eliminate and decommission the gang database. It's a gang database that the county sheriff's office 
um, has held for for some time and just a lot of issues around just that database, just uh, the lack of transparency. You didn't know if you were on the on the on the database, didn't know how to get off the database. And what was most striking about it was that 75 percent of individuals on the database uh, were black. And the vast majority of those on the database were black and brown, mm-hmm. obviously. And, you know, one of the things that we were very clear about, uh, Commissioner and I and myself, is that not just running um, as progressives, but leading as progressives through pushing ordinances and laws, legislation that can bring transformation, um, particularly to our criminal justice system um, that has been a very corrupt, broken system for a long time in this country that has targeted poor people, black people overwhelmingly, and brown people. And very proud to be a part of just that moment, that effort um, to see the gang database eliminated. Now it needs to be eliminated from the city of Chicago. Uh, so Carlos, Jeanette, and Andre, and Rosana, uh, Daniel Laspada, and Byron Sigcho Lopez, you all have work to do in a couple of weeks. And so we're hoping that that happens. And then, of course, I just passed my first legislation piece of legislation uh, on Thursday, which was yesterday. Yeah, but, and uh, talk about that briefly. Yeah, so we there was a coalition called the Just Housing Coalition that had been working on e, basically ending discrimination um, in housing uh, for families that have an arrest record and a mm. background. And they've been working on it for three years, brought it to my attention in January. I said, absolutely, we'll carry it. And many people did not believe that we could move it as quickly as we did. Uh, but because of the hard work of the coalition, again, the progressive nature of the county board, where there are, are a, a few of us there now that you know want to see a more bold, transformational form of government, uh, they jumped on the ordinance right away. And basically what the ordinance does is that, you know, when, when a, a, a renter is seeking housing in Cook County, um, that a landlord has to, first of all, um, consider all other factors before the question of their history even comes up in an application. So in other words, they have to determine whether or not the applicant has the ability to pay or meet all the other expectations and standards that the the landlord um, has in place. At which point, once that has been established, then if they decide to um, inquire about someone's background, it's only at that point that they can consider. And and I want to say consider, consider whether they've been uh, incarcerated or they've been exactly. They can consider actually running a background check, and if something actually comes back that there is something in their history, uh, that the landlord is now required under this ordinance to make that information transparent. Mm -hmm. So they have to actually show the tool that they use. They actually have to give the potential tenant an opportunity to to basically provide um, context around the the incident Mm -hmm. or even the arrest. And and the reason why that's important, Ben, is because for many people who have a history um, in America, uh, they're tagged with that scarlet letter, if you will, for the duration of their existence, Mm -hmm. and that is not justice. And so what this ordinance does, it basically gives families an opportunity to have a shot at a safe, um, affordable, healthy living um, environment. It's also important because just in my district alone, the first district of Cook County, western suburbs, the west side of Chicago, 3,300 returning citizens from jails and prisons come to my district every single year. Mm-hmm. 1,500 of them are women. 80% of those women are mothers. 
And so, you know, as a public school teacher, as a former public school teacher, we have fought hard to elevate this issue where 20,000 homeless students that are documented in the city of Chicago um, is a real problem. And so we can make a very clear connection between homelessness and families who have a parent with a record. And if we're not doing what we need to do um, to provide opportunities for families to just have a shot at a a decent living, um, then our progressive message uh, falls short. So we actually have to carry the progressive mantle, Mm -hmm. which are the responsibilities that come with leading. Mm -hmm. All right, now, uh, just listening to you talk about this, it makes me think about something we were talking about earlier today, uh, and it, it relates with um, the pres- presidential race. Might as well get it right out there early. Uh, Joe Biden just announced he was running, and he's going to be running for the Democratic nomination. Joe Biden, of course, former vice president for Barack Obama. Joe Biden, of course, for many, many years, a senator from Delaware. Uh, immediately over the Internet, there was playing a, uh, a speech that Joe Biden, I don't know if you saw this, a speech that Joe Biden gave as a senator on the floor of the Senate in regards to Bill Clinton's uh, crime bill from the 90s. Now, of course, the age difference between Brandon and myself is vast. Uh, he may have been on his um, uh, tricycle back in- Not that uh, much. <laughs> uh, freshman in high school. <laughs> freshman in yeah. high school. So, uh, of course, when we, when we look back uh, uh, Monday morning quarterbacking, we realized how uh, devastating the crime bill was to so many families, to so many people, to so many neighborhoods, because just the automatic uh, mandatory penalties, sending people away to jail for crimes that are other people do all the time and never even get punished. Generally, it's black people. Uh, and there was Joe Biden on the floor, vociferously uh, uh, arguing for the bill. I don't know if you saw this footage. I did. Uh, and, uh, and then denouncing liberals in his party, almost like he was mocking them for trying to talk, think, talk about the roots of crime. Why do I care about the roots of crime? I just want to protect you know, uh, the mothers and the women. He even talked to like, you know, mothers and women. So how much, in your humble opinion, you're, you're now as a Cook County Board Commissioner trying to uh, rectify some of the damage control, uh, some of the damage uh, per- perpetuated by the crime bill, by mandatory sentencing. Uh, how much should Democrats uh, hold the Bidens of the world uh, accountable for the position on an issue from 25 years ago? Yeah, first of all, until they, that's a very good question. I think, first of all, I think it's important to recognize that for a long time in this country, the the, the criminal system has been used to, to harm black families, uh, to set up measures and laws to, to, to criminalize black folks. And, you know, I'm watching you know, the Reconstruction PBS documentary right now um, where there's been some great research around post-Reconstruction and how um, even after my ancestors were emancipated, how the political system used the criminal system to basically to continue the enslavement of black people and black men in particular. Uh, black women, of course, were impacted by it in a very profound way, and it's actually harmed generations. And so you fast forward you know, from Reconstruction, obviously I'm a social studies teacher, uh, Ben, and moved through the 90s, what, what Joe Biden was essentially doing was carrying out a long, painful history of the, the, the racist policies that have been uh, promulgated throughout history in America. And you know, I think to your point around like how those of us who are in position now, how we have to rectify and provide remedy 
and hope, quite frankly, to families who have been devastated by these failed policies, it, it, it's, it's critically important because it's, it's, it's clear that the ghost of Jim Crow continues to haunt families that have already been marginalized by a racist system that has benefited uh, white supremacy economically in particular. And so to think to your question around like, how forgiving should we be in this moment, the real question is, has Joe Biden asked for forgiveness? H- has, has he brought himself to a level of humility, seeking atonement, and then not only seeking atonement, but pushing for policies that can actually bring restoration to the families that have been harmed by his, I mean, you know, I'm obviously trying to be a little bit more thoughtful in the type of words that I use, but that have been harmed by his blindness and quite frankly, even his sort of intentional blindness to the root causes of many of the conditions that people in my district live through. And those causes are based primarily on failed policies that continue to attack working class families that continue to marginalize working class families that continue to put forth barriers mm-hmm. um, for black families to have access to jobs, healthcare, schools, transportation. And so he has to actually seek atonement and you don't seek atonement by essentially running on the same ideas and the platforms and the same mockery that he was spewing in the nineties. It's disrespectful. It's out of line. It's outdated. And I hope the country becomes clear about his position and why he's running, because his goal is ultimately to stop the type of movement that we're pushing at the county board is to bring real transformation to our government so that we can actually make families whole. So you're not seeking uh, in this particular case. This is a similar situation by with Hillary Clinton uh, in 2016, because the same issue of the mandatory sentencing arose for her. She, of course, was the wife of Bill Clinton, uh, and she made some disparaging remarks about predators, I believe, in the 90s, wasn't it? Uh, so it's not that you're seeking an apology uh, so much as an acknowledgement that, my goodness, you we got it wrong. wrong. Yeah. You got it wrong. And see, that's the problem, particularly with the old white man form of leadership. They just refuse to humble themselves to the leadership of women, particularly black women, the leadership of black men, even the ideology of progressive, powerful policies that can actually make a country more equitable and just. It's, it's, they, they, um, Joe Biden, they're very obstinate. Um, in a very vicious way towards this type of progress. And it's very paternalistic, but it's also very consistent with the history of this country. But what's also consistent is that there are people who are clear about bringing resistance. And that resistance is about, again, bringing restoration. So he has to seek atonement. He has to say he was wrong. And then begin to demonstrate policies like Elizabeth Warren is pushing, like forgiving debt and making sure that access to Medicare for every single person is a human right. Really demanding that college is free, 
Mm-hmm. Well, along these lines, I must read you a quote from today's newspaper, which I have shared uh, with and, uh, with other uh, people I've been interviewing. Uh, fascinating quote in terms of getting right at the heart of what you're talking about. I don't know. I pretty much based on what you said, I think you're going to disagree with this quote, but I just want to get your response to it because it's right to the point that you were making. It's from a column in today's Tribune by Darlene Glanton, who's a Tribune columnist, and she's talking about Joe Biden's entrance in the race, and she's saying that it's imperative imperative uh, for Democrats to concentrate on what matters most, and that's defeating Donald Trump. And this is what she writes, and I'm quoting, who doesn't like the idea of free college tuition, having their college loans dismissed, reparations for descendants of slaves, and Medicare for all? It all sounds great, but informed and realistic voters know that such things cost money and that they could never see the light of day without bipartisan support in Congress. Those aren't the types of things Democrats should be focusing on this time around. They must have one goal in mind, stopping Trump from winning a second term. End of quote. What's your thoughts on that quote? It's a, it's very lazy. It's irresponsible. Um, this writer is missing the political moment that we're in right now. It actually turns out that you can actually defeat racism with better ideas. You don't just defeat racism just because you're just showing up to a fight. That the focus is not just about beating Donald Trump. The focus is about improving the lives of people. And you have to give people a reason to want to show up to vote. And people are not just simply motivated by just defeating someone. People are motivated because they believe in something. And sometimes they actually might believe in someone. My greatest hope is, is, is not that much different, honestly, than my father's hope his father's hope for all of us was that what makes a dream become a reality is actually having real commitment and vision around what we believe is possible. And when someone like that writes that this all sounds good, how are you going to pay for it? It's actually not that complicated. No one asked that question when developers are seeking $2 billion to build a playground for rich people. And oh, by the way, we'll throw in a few affordable units. No one asked those questions, you know, when billionaires and millionaires are seeking tax credits and tax breaks to bring so-called jobs to our, our economy without any real guarantee that those jobs will actually reach the people who need them the most. Right now, we are experiencing Great Depression era numbers of unemployment in black communities. And the only way we're going to see like a real transformation is to have bold, progressive ideas that speak to the core of the, 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 the economic structure that has crippled generations. Remember at the height of, and I say remember as if you were there, but at the height of the Great Depression... <laughs> Which I think you just missed that. Uh, I don't know. It's pretty close. <laughs> Big Ben was like seven months old. Yeah, yeah. It's like early man. days. I, ba- I vaguely remember. <laughs> right. Yeah, go on. But at the height of the Great Depression, <laughs> unemployment yeah. had reached 30% mm. amongst white men in this country. And our country called it a national crisis. And it was. And everything imaginable that the government could, quote, throw at white men, they did it. White men had shovels before there was stuff to dig, right? <laughs> yeah. And so, so our country has the ability to spend trillions of dollars yeah. in wars and gentrification, 
push out of black families all over this country and black folks are asking for access to education, medicine, and a W-2. And somehow that's radical. Yeah. By the way, it's not just black people who are yeah. seeking uh, education. I think uh, and uh, uh, healthcare. I do believe this is a unifying issue uh, that could bring black people from Chicago, let's say, together with uh, uh, not so wealthy white people from downstate. I think there's commonality. I think that's right, Ben. In fact, it's something that Reverend Jackson talked about in his '84, '88 campaign. I was a kid then, but you. Were- <laughs> However you word you were, I'm sure your back is probably a little bit better than uh, yeah, But he yeah. talked about that, like really unifying the country around these ideas. In fact, it yeah. was, in fact, Reverend Jackson ran on singer payer in 84. Like, did so he? He, he I don't did. remember that. And 88. Yeah. Like, these, these, these aren't new ideas. And that the fact that it's taken us this long to actually get to a point where it's mainstream is, of course, problematic. Well, you know what's interesting? Uh, I had an interview earlier today, or last week, I should say, because by the time you're listening, it would have been last week, with uh, Heidi Henry. And if you don't know Heidi, uh, Brandon, I urge you someday to meet her. She is a progressive from uh, LaSalle County, uh, outside of Chicago. She ran for state senator, ran as a, as a very progressive campaign in a Trump district got 40 percent of the vote so she lost but she ran i thought a very admirable campaign sticking to her principles she did not try to move right she uh, uh, stipulated her worldview and gave her reason for it and hoped that the voters would see commonality and move uh, to her section of uh, the worldview and uh, she said something that was very interesting she said that democrats from chicago all too often talk down to uh, mem- to her constituents, talk down to farmers, talk down to people in rural America or rural Illinois in this case, uh, and try to tell them that what what they should do, what's in their best interest, and try instead of trying to understand uh, where um, you know people are coming from uh, in rural America. And when I'm listening to you, it's a very similar thing. Uh, the way many leaders speak to uh, black people, you know, this is what you're going to take, and <laughs> don't ask for more. And just vote. Do you see the? I do, and I appreciate you know just the, the comparison. I mean, I think about you know what just happened in the state of Georgia, which obviously is not just the South, but there is definitely rural there, and how Stacey Abrams certainly you know rose to the very top on you know the the values that we're talking about, Medicare for all, and you know you know eradicating student debt and making college free. Um, and really expanding our public education opportunities for folks and you know, really expanding, expanding the public sector so that there are actually jobs and services delivered for people. I think there actually is a very strong connection there. I mean, I mean think about the city of Chicago and you know, the migrations that have occurred over the last I don't know, 40, 50 years, where many of the folks who actually settled, settled on the west and south side of Chicago came from rural south. And there are a lot of values and principles that I believe still exist today as a result of just that that rich tradition. And when I think about the type of poverty that we see throughout the country, mm-hmm. where there are millions of children without health care, um, millions of people who are looking for not just a job, but a job that gives them dignity, mm-hmm. that pays them a livable wage, having a home so that they can actually secure some wealth for their for their for the next generation. That there are connections and the type of suffering that people are experiencing um, in central Illinois, southern Illinois, you think about East St. Louis or Peoria, um, uh, you know, Marion County, 
Um, and obviously, you can go up to Rockford, right, uh, headed north, um, that folks are experiencing abject poverty all over this state. I don't know if enough people know how wicked, you know, poverty is and the extreme conditions in which our children are living in black, brown, white, mm-hmm. just seeking some opportunity, just some refuge in a country that is the wealthiest country, it, 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 the wealthiest country at, at, at a time where corporations are making more money now than they've ever made in the history of making money in this country, and that includes slavery. And somehow, whether you're black, brown, white, um, central Illinois, southern Illinois, um, the urban area up in Rockford and Waukegan, that you know, folks don't have you know adequate books, you know, librarians, social workers, counselors, um, infrastructure needs where the the access to clean uh, water <laughs> that's affordable where it's not making it into our living rooms. There are real desperate circumstances right now. And so for the writer of the Tribune to suggest that somehow having access for black, brown, white folks all over the country, access to clean water and a school that's not crumbling and a job that a mom and dad can go to and have weekends off and maybe every so often go to an amusement park, that somehow that's wishful thinking. That sounds like someone that is cloaked and covered in privilege that doesn't know what it's like to be in a very desperate state calling for real transformation. It's too bad for her. And I'm so glad that the country is not going to acquiesce to that, that type of lazy, um, uh, privileged space that doesn't recognize the need for real dynamic change. Well, let me ask you this. Do you think that the Democratic Party, I know it's it's a long way off, uh, we're about a year out from the convention, uh, or for the end to the end of the primary season, we're just entering it. But uh, your sense of where the party is now, where the electorate is now, do you think that the Democratic Party is ready to nominate uh, a progressive who runs on a very progressive slate, uh, championing such issues as universal uh, health care, universal college education? You think the party's ready to do that? I think the electorate is ready. I don't know about the party. When we talk about the party, we're talking about the party's leadership. Mm-hmm. The party. Um, keep in mind that both political parties um, have very cozy relationships with the interests of corporations, the 1%, the powerful, those that continue to profit off of the misery that they create. And so this is why it's going to be important for us. We still have a lot of work to do, Ben. Don't get me wrong. Um, we have to spend time in neighborhoods, talking to people, knocking on their doors, holding house meetings. That's the type of organizing that I did when I ran for office. I had to raise a lot of money, but I had to spend time with people. What Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders in particular cannot do is to remain, you know, you know, in, in their pulpit, if you will, or their podium, providing these great lectures and these ideas without coming into neighborhoods and talking to leaders, um, you know, community-based organization leaders about what that would mean in real life for people. And how do we build the infrastructure and the movement to get the electorate to come out on those values, right? Because I believe, again, the electorate wants to see these things. But we have to engage the electorate in a way that is not just simply speaking from a microphone. 
It has to be door to door. Mm-hmm. All right, let's move on a little closer to home. Uh, you, of course, as I said at the outset, are your Cook County Board Commissioner, but you're also uh, a member of the Chicago Teachers Union, Deputy Political Director of the Chicago Teachers Union. Chicago Teachers Union uh, endorsed Tony Preckwinkle in this last campaign. Didn't work out too well uh, in terms of that endorsement, to put it mildly, 75 to 25 uh, was the margin of in the election with Lori Lightfoot winning. Any regrets? Uh, Brandon, on having endorsed Tony Perkwinkle over uh, Lori Lightfoot? Not at all. I mean, look, we, we it was very clear to us at the time in which, you know, our union voted to uh, endorse Tony Preckwinkle. Um President Preckwinkle had committed to all of the things that are important to us. In fact, most of the candidates, <laughs> most of them, there were a few knuckleheads, but most of the candidates, <laughs> you know, ran on our platform. Yeah. And so, though President Preckwinkle did not win, our issues did win. Um, it's very clear that what was necessary in this moment was to have someone like President Preckwinkle carry um, this message because it wasn't just about, you know, you know, securing the win, which that's important. You want to win politically. But it was also about building our power and our influence across Cook County. Right. And I believe it gave President Preckwinkle an opportunity to really talk more about her leadership at the county because we still have work to do there. So there are no regrets. But again, I think that even with the mayor elect, it's not going to be enough for her to carry the message of the Chicago Teachers Union. Is she willing to carry the mantle? And what I mean by that is that the carrying a mantle requires you to take a position. But also, it also requires you to take some responsibility for the positions that you take. And what concerns me at this point about the mayor-elect is um, her attack against the elected school board that she said was a good idea until the day after she won the seat. And her critique of this school board was because it, it, it had too many members mm-hmm. you know, on it. And of the, the proposal that the exists proposal, right I'm now, sorry, and it was clear. passed the House. I think there's 21 districts. There's 21. There's 20 mm-hmm. districts, and there's 20. one citywide Got district. It. And 20. so, you know, she's saying that, that this would cause chaos. And you know, I, I I don't understand like her thinking around that. And she probably should ask more questions about how we actually came to that conclusion. But but a board that does not have representation is not a board that we can get behind. Mm-hmm. Because it's not about just having an elected board. It's about having representation. And the smaller the board gets, the less representation people will have, especially folks in my district on the west side of Chicago, where we have a very strong, concentrated part of the city. That as the board gets smaller, we lose our ability to have the type of representation we need on that board. Mm -hmm. And that's disconcerting. So. Uh, when she was running, when Lori Lightfoot was running uh, for mayor of the city of Chicago, the Chicago Teachers Union uh, was, again, was supporting Tony Preckwinkle. And there was some sort of, there was some harsh rhetoric from the C- uh, CTU uh, regarding Lori Lightfoot. And a few times that I interviewed her, I asked her, uh, you know, Lori Lightfoot, are you going to hold us against the Chicago Teachers Union that they're uh, supporting your opponent? And they're engaged in harsh rhetoric against you. Uh, and she said, no, I understand this. I'm paraphrasing what Lori Lightfoot told me. Uh, in, in interviews. No, I will not hold that against them. Uh, I realize that politics is not bean bag, as they say, and uh, that when the election's over, 
uh, put aside the politics, uh, to put, put, put aside the rhetoric. So has that happened? It's now been, what, almost two weeks, I think, since the election, as we sit here in this studio. Uh, has that happened? Has the rhetoric the campaign subsided? Has the Chicago Teachers Union had outreach with Lori Lightfoot? Has she had outreach with you? That kind so of- we have not had a direct conversation with the mayor-elect Lightfoot um, yet, um, but, but our teams have had conversations. And the initial conversation of of you know her team and some members on our team um, that that initial conversation was I would say productive. I mean, look, there's there's a lot to do in this city, right? I mean, there's there's a lot to repair. Um, Rahm Emanuel was terrible. I was going to ask you about Rahm's legacy, yeah. but go ahead. He's yeah. terrible. Yeah, and somehow he just refuses to go away, though he just keeps talking. <laughs> doing stuff yeah just needs to go somewhere just sit down and so you know what 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 is clear to me ben Mm -hmm. is that what better partner to have in leading this city than the chicago teachers union you want that partnership because our leadership is not confined to the school building it's the school communities it's why we fought for the type of economic demands that could bring real wholeness to our communities, like affordable housing, you know, ending the school to prison pipeline and ending the, so the criminalization, the real criminalization of people. Um, it's why the ideas around these so-called smaller mini cop academies um, being proposed for closed schools is a bad idea. And so these initial conversation, these initial conversations have been somewhat productive, a long way to go. Um, but the mayor elect, um, whomever is advising her, has to recognize that there is real equity that our membership has with the city of Chicago and quite frankly for the country where we've influenced movements around this country. We've actually elevated voices of people who have been marginalized for a long time. And that's a good thing to elevate those voices. You want those voices taken on the very powerful structure structures in this country that, that do not want to see bold transformational change. Mm -hmm. We're talking about millionaires and billionaires that profit from the the closure of schools, the dismantling of the public sector, uh, the elimination of real job opportunities. The mayor-elect of the city of Chicago wants the Chicago Teachers Union as a partner. And anything short of a real partnership, given all of the challenges that we have for the city of Chicago, um, would be a wasted opportunity. I agree with you, but then it, it's easy to see how Lori Lightfoot might look at it. Uh, you know, she, uh, the CTU is against her. They were very bold in their rhetoric against her. Uh, she won with 75% of the vote. Some human beings might have the inclination uh, to give you that middle finger, uh, metaphorically, of course. Uh, I think the the current mayor of the city of Chicago probably would have had that attitude, uh, Mayor Rahm, that is, uh, had he been in a similar situation. So, um, Well, he did have that attitude, <laughs> and he didn't even win by that margin. Yeah, he did. He did. And so all I'm saying is if you want to F you the CTU, yeah. Rahm is gone. Bruce Rahner said F you to the CTU. He's gone. I know this is a podcast. You actually can say that, but clearly I have good training. That is correct. Yes. Thank you very much. And my kids will download this episode, I'm sure, because <laughs> they want to hear how their dad sounds on the radio. Yeah. Podcast. Oh, you should hear Monroe Anderson. What? Oh, oh, my God. Mouth on that, man. You want to know. Yeah, but go ahead. Yeah. So. So, so, you know, you had two politicians who, you know, wanted to stick it to the working class and they're both gone and the CTU are still here. 
and only are we still here, um, we've elected people to the city council. There are six democratic socialists on the city council that received the support of the Chicago Teachers Union. Again, you have a bold, progressive uh, Cook County Board of Commissioners. You're seeing bold, progressive leaders in Springfield. Um, that if 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 we really, really want to see like the type of justice that's necessary for the city of Chicago in politics, here's what I've learned: you want to add as many people to the movement as possible, right? It's it's like anything when you're trying to build a coalition. It's black, brown, white, north side, west side. Southwest side of Chicago, um, central Illinois, southern Illinois, um, the northern parts of Illinois, west coast, east coast, that there are people who are looking for a real model and an example of what leadership means in this moment when we have such desperate times. If the mayor elect is going to allow um, uh, a more perial, <laughs> immature sort of response to politics because of a couple commercials in a digital ad, then, then I think you have to actually question their viability to lead. See, it's one thing to run for office. Now you have to actually turn on like a, sort of a different level of not only expectations, mm-hmm. but a different level of, of, of drive to actually lead. The, the, the easy part, Ben, believe it or not, and I'll just put that in, you know, in quotations, is actually carrying a message. That's actually not that difficult because it's actually popular now because there's an entire movement that made it possible to run on a school board, made it possible to fight for Medicare for all. There were real people who spent, you know, with, with time with me as an organizer, filling up buses, getting arrested, taking over, you know, lobbies and banks, you know, shutting down downtown LaSalle Street to bring justice to Chicago. We had a president of the Chicago Teachers Union who is now recovering from a rare brain a disease, a cancer, who would have been mayor of Chicago had that not happened. People have put their bodies, their lives, their political lives on the line for this moment. And so that, it, so that you could actually elect someone like Lori Lightfoot. And if she is not in tune with the movement that made her election possible, if she's not in tune with that movement, deeply concerned about her ability to lead the uh, uh, head of the Chicago Teachers Union that Brandon was uh, referring to of course is the great Karen Lewis Uh, Karen if you're listening God bless you you know I love you and um, all right uh, very well spoken Brandon. I'm sure the next time you uh, come on this show uh, there will have been more can I'm hoping there will have been more outreach between uh, the mayor-elect because I noticed that the mayor-elect has met with Mayor Rahm and she's met with members of the business community there was a a memo uh, that was printed in the Sun-Times from Rocky Wirtz owner of the Blackhawks sort of a follow-up giving her advice on how she could have better relations with the uh, business community Um, I know she took a phone call from Donald Trump Donald John Trump president of the United States you know Donald Trump is of course she went down to Springfield she met with Pritzker et cetera, et cetera. so I'm really hoping uh, that the the mayor like you know can find her time to break bread with Brandon or Stacy or Jesse or whoever is well yeah, we hope so too we welcome know. that yeah um, all right now uh, before I let you go this is something you know I've been wanting to talk to you about I told you I was gonna talk to you about this on the phone uh, and uh, I'm utterly obsessed with this story. Um, I've been talking about it with all my friends, and all right, just. Uh, but I don't know if I've talked about it on the air yet, so I'll just give folks a little uh, uh, background on this one. Um, Brandon is a uh, 
big baseball fan. You may may not know that people, but uh, he's a Cubs fan. I'm not going to hold that against him. Uh, and uh, this concerns a the shortstop for the Chicago White Sox. His name is Tim Anderson, one of the few African Americans uh, on the White Sox. Maybe the only one uh, on the White Sox. The Cubs have one, don't they? Yeah, we're Jason down. Hayward. Jason Hayward. Because Carl but, Edwards is in the minors. Am and, I correct on that? Uh, I actually still count Addison Russell. He's on his way back. Addison Russell. But I've actually also count Javi Baez. Okay, he's just gonna. <laughs> he's not technically an African American. He's Puerto Rican, but whatever. Yeah, let's throw strong him. African history. Roots, that is correct. Okay, so fine. I, yeah. Yeah. You know what? I'll give it to you. All right. All right. Anyway, so t- this I love this story so much. I'm trying not to laugh. Uh, Tim Anderson. He's having a great year, uh, and he hit a home run, and he flipped the bat in celebration, and with the ball, flipped the bat. He ran around the. It was against the Kansas City Royals. The pitcher took exception to it. The next time Tim Anderson came up to the bat. Uh, the pitcher threw, hit him uh, in the, the, the butt, so it wasn't really like in the head. It wasn't dangerous, but it hurt, I'm sure. Uh, Tim Anderson walked toward the mound as though he was going to fight with them, and he was yelling at him. And uh, among the things he yelled, and I could say, but I'm not going to because we're going to clean everything up, but lame ass mother beep. Uh, and then he called him the N word. And so, lame ass mother beep N word. Okay, figure that out, everybody. What he said to him. Okay, uh, Tim uh, Tim Anderson was kicked out of the game. He was suspended a game. And uh, here's the kicker, the twist: the pitcher that he called a lame ass mother beep N word is white, and so he got suspended for calling a white guy the N word. Uh, I. Brandon, I'm not quite sure I know what to make out of all that. Now, I'm old. You like to point that out. You're you're going to be my, you're going to help me out here. You're going to be my uh, translator for the younger generation. So what has happened to the, the N-word where it's used that way uh, and he gets suspended for it? But I don't know. It almost like it was a compliment in some ways. If you will, all right. Explain. Well, well, so first of all, I think I'm youngish, man. I mean, I don't, I know. Sometimes the way I feel, some days I feel like I'm, you know, moving pretty slow these days. So I think I'm catching up with you. Um, but, you know, first of all, I mean, I think the, the, you're, you highlighting the fact that Tim Anderson is a black baseball player, African-American. I think that's actually very powerful. Yes, I'm a huge baseball fan. Uh, both my sons play. My daughter's going to play. You know, I'm all about promoting uh, black baseball now more than ever because, you know, we're, we're, we're not seeing as many mm-hmm. um, play the game that I, that I do love. You know, as far as this incident, I mean, first of all, Major League Baseball, their initial reasoning for suspending Tim Anderson was because of the bat flip. The flip, yeah. Flip. And then they say, well, no, that wasn't it because he used the N-word. I actually really believe that the real offense to the Major League Baseball um, was not the N-word. I think that was a convenient excuse. I actually believe it was the bat flip because, you know, baseball has been protected for a very long time. You know, as this the sport that has been dominated and controlled by white men, and and you still see that reflected in its leadership and its ownership, managers, coaches, and all through you know organizations. And so there's this sort of quote unquote behavior that is expected. So you know, a, a guy can't flip his bat and show up the pitcher. But the pitcher could take a ball and throw it <laughs> yeah. 95 miles per hour. Yeah. Like, that just doesn't make any sense. You know, so I actually believe that that was the offense, really, 
that Major League Baseball took. And as more and more um, black players, I believe, begin to, to get pushed into the game of baseball, you're seeing more, um, you know, players from, you know, the, the, the islands, if you will, of, you know, Puerto Rico and the, Dominic, the Dominican uh, Republic, um, where else are we called the Cuba, you know, so yeah, more, you know, I still call them black players, but blacks who are not born in, in, in the United States of America, um, that there, that there is a certain level of control that, that the, the white power structure still wants to keep over baseball. As far as the use of the N word, I mean, I think the bottom line for me is that the N word has been, I think, transformed within spaces within the black community, not all spaces. And that room, that word has been transformed uh, to, to relate to other black people in um, an endearing way. Not saying that it still doesn't have the sting where it can be used to actually call out someone's ignorance. You know, Tim Anderson's use of the N word, and I just think black people's use of the N word that there is a place of privilege that I believe that black people are able to maintain with that word. Mm -hmm. That is a word that has a profound history in this country and that I am not going to allow anyone to dictate and to determine how black people interpret and even use that word. Um, Even if I decide as an individual that the use of that word will have limitations in my home. And, you know, we we will do our best to contain um, the use of that word. But the community as a whole um, has a variety of views and perspectives around that word. And I believe that the ownership, if you will, of the use of the word today um, that it is one place of privilege that I do believe that black people should maintain. Well, Michael Wilbaum, uh, who is the ESPN uh, sports announcer, it does um, the show with Tony Kornheiser, um, big fan of Michael Wilbaum and Tony Kornheiser. He, uh, when after this Tim Anderson story broke, he, he, he's, he's, I don't know if you ever heard him on the subject, but he's, he, he's like you, he says, and I'm paraphrasing the best I can. He was talking about how it was, uh, uh, the, the commissioner of baseball, uh, Rob Manfred, I think his name is a white man, Joe Torrey, who's uh, in charge of discipline for baseball as a white man. And he, uh, Wilbon said uh, that a white man should have absolutely no say in telling black people how they can use this word flat out at any times at any, uh, at any moment. Do you agree with uh, Wilbon on that? I do. I do. I agree a hundred percent. And, and again, you know, and I, I'm using the word privilege, you know, you know, in a very intentional way, is that there aren't a lot of things that black <laughs> yeah. people, you know, are able to like own and have, you know, rights to. And we're, we're working on that, but language in particular, because again, that's what was stolen from us from the very beginning, mm-hmm. our culture and our language. And that is a point of privilege that we should maintain, you know, and speaking of privilege too, by the way, Ben, you know, I think I share this. Story. I know we got to get going here. I'm, I'm really disappointed yeah. in, in your inability yeah. to use your white male privilege. Yeah, to um, do what now? You know, because <laughs> the whole point of having uh, certain white friends yeah, in yeah, your life is yeah. to have some yeah. white privilege around you so uh-huh. you might be able to benefit from yeah. it. And 
What you, do you, you want? You do a terrible job at it. Like you've, like, I got fired. You got all right. fired. Like you've been fired more times than like James Evans. It's like, yeah, man. I mean, my goodness. I think James Evans had a better run on yeah. good times with employment. I was going to say, they're going to kick me out of the white race if this keeps up because I've been fired a few times. But whatever. I'm not getting fired yet from this place, right, D? Not yet. Well, anyway. not yet. <laughs> All right. Anyway, but Brandon Johnson, he keeps doing that stuff. Uh, I'm Get fired. No, no, no. I'm just kidding. Brandon Johnson, Cook County Commissioner, uh, Deputy Political Director from the Chicago Teachers Union. Thank you so much for coming on. Break this a regular occasion, all right? I promise. All right. Very good. That's Brandon Johnson. I'm Ben Jarofsky. This is a bonus feature on the Ben Jarofsky Show. Have a good day, everybody.